Pricing power at the grocery store may finally be hitting a wall. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Joining us now is Bill Barker. Bill, good to see you. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start with Delta's Investor Day. Delta Airlines held that on Tuesday, where it bumped earnings by a smidge and free cash flow generation guidance by a billion dollars from two to three billion. Bill, a lot of that margin revenue comes from the Delta SkyMiles card. When when you look at these numbers, is this a travel rebound story, a consumer debt story, or maybe a little bit of both? I suppose a little bit of both, although I think investors uh, in Delta are going to want to focus on the travel rebound part of the story, uh, which is uh, you know pretty positive. I think that uh, the industry association is now predicting that uh, 2023 is going to come close, not quite match uh, 2019's levels of, of uh, travelers uh, and, and revenue. Uh, so, we're not back to pre-pandemic levels. There's good reason for that, with business travel still being, I would say, highly curtailed, uh, fighting against the pent-up uh, you know, vacation uh, and and you know individual travel stories. So uh, it's certainly much better levels than last year. And uh, you know, Delta's Investor Day put a spotlight on that. And the work isn't finished, but it's it's a lot closer to being back to where it was than it has been for a long time. One of the surprising pieces to me was the rebound, especially for those premium seats. On Delta flights, that's where they drive a lot of revenue and margin. The story was is that that was supposed to stay down in the hybrid work model. Businesses continue to cut travel spending, but Delta says that's where it's driving a lot of growth again. What what do you think is happening with that? Well, certainly the, the business travel is growing from a very 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 low uh, base uh, in the last year, uh, and then you've got people that are willing to spend right now. They haven't taken those. Vacations. They haven't done the travel to see family uh, that they had wanted to in the past couple of years. It's easier to travel now. Uh, I know last year I was flying back from Europe, uh, May of last year. Still had to come up with a negative COVID test to fly back into the country. That's no longer the case. That hasn't been the case for a while. Uh, and so, the people who are willing to spend. Uh, for business class and, and first class and uh, economy plus are there. They've got money left over from all the travel they didn't take uh, in the previous couple of years. Uh, but the airlines would love to see actual business travel return to you know, a, a significant fraction of where it was in 2019. I don't know how many years it's going to take for that to occur, given how much uh, business uh, people are willing to do on Zoom still. Uh, it seems like airlines are more cyclical than the average business. You got to worry about fuel, fuel costs, um, global macroeconomic factors. Uh, is this an area you look at for long-term investing, or generally avoid? Well, in terms of long-term investing, investing through a number of cycles, I think it's a good question. Uh, I'd prefer to arrive when things look worst, you know, for airlines because. You know the implication of cycles is that uh, there will be a good good spot and a bad spot uh, within the cycle. Uh, investing through the cycles historically, airlines have not been good businesses. They've not 
done a great job of staying out of bankruptcy. Uh, so you've uh, periodically been wiped out in a lot of cases, uh, and you know then they come out of bankruptcy and with a better business plan. Certainly, the seat capacity, uh, seat uh, utilization is infinitely better now than it was uh, 20 years ago. Uh, they do have real uh, algorithms that are putting the right number of people onto flights. Makes it unpleasant often uh, for travelers, but uh, you know, a full airplane is what they need, uh, and that's mostly what they get. I'd say it's a vastly improved business uh, to where it was uh, 20 years ago, but still, uh, as we are, are finding out, we're still working our way back to cycle highs. We're not there yet. It's been four years of a down cycle. Let's move on to General Mills, which is telling a little bit of a different story about the economy. General Mills stock took a small hit this morning. The maker of Cheerios, Pillsbury, Fruit Roll-Ups announced a dividend raise, total sales increase on the year, but it looks like the pricing power might be hitting a wall for this consumer goods giant. Yeah, there's not much cyclical about eating. Uh, you know, you do it every day, and uh, you're going to uh, tomorrow and for for many years to come. So it doesn't have uh, the highs and lows by any means. Uh, General Mills brands, you look at them, they're the ones that you've uh, grown up with. You know, whether it's Lucky Charms or Bisquick or uh, you know, so many uh, Pillsbury. Uh, there are things you know from. However old you are, you probably learned about them through commercials uh, from your earliest days. What they're looking at now is, uh, you know, the the population is not growing that fast, uh, and they're going to be looking at more or less inflation plus population growth as the benchmark. Unless eating habits change dramatically, that's the kind of of growth you can look for here. Uh, absent uh, really discovering a better selection of things that people want to eat. Of course, a lot of their uh, historical legacy brands are on the wrong side of the nutritional uh, and health uh, you know trends. So you know I don't I don't know that they've got a better looking future than than their past. Seems like a lot of disrespect for the Lucky Charms there, Bill Barker. I love Lucky Charms. There aren't enough people like me. That's that's the problem for for, for uh, General Mills. I think is that there are too many people that have uh, decided to pay attention to uh, all the nutritional information. What a shame for their shareholders. So uh, General Mills, I think, also ran out of some room to cut around the edges. Maybe people are finally getting fed up with the shrinkflation. Uh, General Mills is not the only culprit in this phenomenon, but they did cut family-sized cereals by an ounce. Members of the Reddit community have pointed out the Pillsbury toaster strudels are getting smaller, and the amount of frosting in packets is also diminishing. So even for your current customers, they might not be delighting them like they used to. Now, a couple of places in the earnings report, they refer to lower organic pound volume. So they're maybe selling the same number of packages, uh, but with less weight, uh, and they're ending up with a slightly improved uh, revenue, but really not quite keeping uh, up with inflation. Inflation's going a little hotter than than what they added to year over year. Net sales increased six percent. Inflation was a little bit higher than that over the previous twelve months. So, I think that uh, you know this this story is going to look very similar from quarter to quarter, from year to year. Uh, but there are limits on what people will will put up with in terms of. 
being charged the same or more for less and less. And, uh, you know, the media is putting a spotlight on that, and that's not helping General Mills. Let's move on to Costco. So now Costco is cracking down on membership sharing. Maybe they're taking a page out of Netflix. Bill, the retailer, says that it is now asking shoppers to show photo ID at self-checkout registers. Uh, does this signal anything to you, or is this just a fun news story? Well, I, I think it signals a an interest in supporting their membership. Uh, members are asked to pay an annual fee, and by definition, uh, they're sort of subsidizing the non-members, the free riders that are borrowing somebody else's membership. So I think that the honest uh, members—not that there's really, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to call sharing a membership dishonest—but uh, the people who are playing by the, you know, rules are subsidizing the the free riders, and it's in Costco's interest to with very uh, crowded stores much of the time to make sure that the ones who are getting in the door are the ones who are supposed to be getting in the door and paying for the privilege uh, to do so. Well, also, I think it's worth noting just how important those membership fees are to Costco and, and the investors in the stock. Yeah, the membership fees are, are sort of the lion's share of the profits here. They are are dedicated to keeping costs low and uh, running a very, very tight margin operation uh, outside of the membership fees. And people are uh, glad to pay them, uh, find value in the membership fees, uh, renew at extremely high rates, well, you know, way, way, way above 90%. Uh, they don't get raised every year. I think we're about due, but I think that. Uh, Costco has done a great job of, uh, you know, keeping the loyalty through service and through not frequently raising prices on on the membership. Big news for AutoZone: Its CEO Bill Rhodes announced that he is stepping down in January of 2024 after leading the company for 18 years. Uh, Bill, this is someone that we don't talk about a lot. But this guy has been a tremendous friend to shareholders during his tenure. Yeah, this is an underreported story, I think, or underappreciated by many uh, who, who haven't followed it. AutoZone's just done a tremendous job uh, for long-term shareholders, uh, largely following a model of uh, aggressively buying back its own shares, uh, not over-expanding. Uh, not wasting money on uh, acquisitions, not necessarily uh, empire building as much as just uh, taking as much money as it can, borrowing a little bit uh, as well uh, to fund share buybacks. And the result has been, for long-term shareholders, a, a compounding, increasing ownership stake in the company. Uh, that's reflected in the share price, which is Two thousand four hundred some dollars today. Uh, there, there, are, you know, many, many, many happy shareholders who are going to be uh, sorry to see roads go. You know, I think one reason this isn't getting a lot of attention is because there's not a lot of drama associated with it, and that makes the story a little bit juicier. Uh, this transition is probably a relatively boring one, with about six months to go to hand the reins to Philip Danielle. He is uh, a vice president of merchandising, marketing, and supply chain teams, and he's the guy who's going to succeed Rhodes. Yeah, stable leadership team. Um, Rhodes, uh, you know, sticking around though not in the CEO position. Uh, I think that uh, 
you know, the, the market is going to continue to uh, look for the past business practices to continue. Might be a little harder uh, with interest rates at 6% running uh, you know, a buyback, uh, which is partially debt-fueled rather than uh, the sort of near 0% interest rates that were available for uh, a, a large chunk of the last decade. Uh, nevertheless, I, I don't think that you're going to see a big change in the business model here, and, and AutoZone uh, and O'Reilly are likely to continue uh, feasting on the uh, uh, you know, carcass of uh, advanced auto. Yeah, I think it's worth discussing the balance sheet flag and funding buyback, funding share buybacks uh, through that debt. Right now, AutoZone has about seven hundred and fifty million dollars in cash and receivables, but it's got eight billion in payables, current debt, and retirement benefits. Uh, is this a real problem in a in a rising interest rate world? Well, it, it's it's a growing uh, you know payment that they need to make to to fuel all this. Um, so it's uh, it, the thing is that the car repair business is extremely predictable. Uh, we know how many older cars there are. We know how many new cars uh, there are. Um, you know that the age of the entire fleet. Uh, you know that when there's a particularly uh, tough winter in terms of weather, the number of potholes that that creates, and and how much additional. Uh, damage happens to cars. Uh, so, there really aren't new variables that appear. Uh, so, it makes the, the predictability of the cash flows uh, something sustainable and, and allows a little taking on more debt than you otherwise would like to see. You know, as I'm sure shareholders would love to see uh, a less. Uh, you know, debt on the balance sheet, uh, but they can't complain with what the debt that has been put onto the balance sheet so far has translated to in terms of equity. So, I, I, I wouldn't look for the same returns to shareholders over the, the coming decade uh, that they've had over the last decade, uh, but I continue to have faith in this company. Bill Barker, appreciate your time and your insight. Thanks for having me. Apple has entered the battle for your deposits. Jason Moser and Matt Frankel take a look at the tech giant's offering and check in on regional banks. Hey, Matt, it's great to catch up with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, I haven't seen you in a few months now. <laughs> well, well, you know, we want to get back to uh, to what we have what we have done so long in talking financials and, and talking banks, uh, particularly today. We want to dive into banks and talk about the regional banks, right? In this this fight for deposits, um, interest rates, of course, have moved up considerably, making these deposit accounts a little bit more attractive for consumers these days. Um, and, and as such, the, these banks need to need to compete a little bit more for those deposits. Looking at the state of regional banks today, and in specifically in regard to deposits, how are these regional banks holding up? Yeah, so it's been a strange dynamic this year, to say the least. So, like, when interest rates started to rise last year, a lot of consumers started to take their money out of the big banks, which pay like nothing. My Wells Fargo account pays like 0.01% still. <laughs> and they started moving out of the accounts like that into regional banks, which can afford to pay more. They generally have lower regulatory costs, for example. And can offer a little bit more with still having the convenience of an in-person bank. And then when this banking uh, panic happened, if you will, uh, earlier this year, people started to move their money out of regional banks at a rapid pace, especially in March and April. Yeah. Um, so since then, it seems to have calmed down. 
Um, there's a few reasons for it, but we're starting to finally see some positive numbers. Recent Federal Reserve data shows that overall U.S. bank deposits uh, are starting to increase for the first time in a while. Um, a lot of people are just taking their money out of banks and putting them into you know Treasury bonds and and non-bank uh, assets like that. Um, so now that seemed to have stabilized. Uh, a few of the most affected banks are starting to report good numbers. Uh, Western Alliance Bank was one of the big hard-hit ones in the in the panic. They recently said that their deposit base grew by two billion dollars in the recent three-month period. So we're seeing some positive numbers come out of the regional banks, and they're doing a lot to kind of bolster consumers' confidence in the regional banking system. Yeah, it, it does feel like. A lot of this just stemmed from a lack of awareness on the consumer's part, maybe that regardless where their money was parked. I mean, these, these, you know, the FDIC insurance is, is a real thing, and it, it maybe maybe folks weren't. I don't know. There, there was a crisis of confidence. I guess is really what it all kind of boiled down to. But but at the end of the day, you know, the the, the funds are still insured, uh, whether it's a regional bank or a big bank. But y- you mentioned. Something there that that I want to dig into a little bit more. You you, you mentioned a, a phrase non-bank instruments, and that makes me think of uh, Apple, right? And uh, Apple now we have they're, they're rolling out a banking uh, a banking relationship or a, ba- a banking product, right? A savings account, I think it is, um, which is it's interesting, right? Apple's not a bank; it's not beholden to those same types of regulatory uh, constraints that, that banks typically are. But they partner with with banks. I think maybe in this case it's Goldman Sachs. Is is the Apple bank account is this a threat? Do you think to regional banks? I mean, are they feeling pressure from this? Like you said, Apple's not a bank. They have no desire to be a bank. There's a lot of regulatory headaches that come with that. They they don't want to be a bank. Yeah. So what they're doing is they're essentially offering a Goldman Sachs savings account product that they're just slapping their name on. Now, I mean, big companies do this kind of stuff all the time. Uh, you know, big brands they slap their name on products to get them to sell. That's what they do. That's you know the whole premise of of a brand like Coca Cola acquiring a new like up and coming beverage. You know, it could sell better under their brand. Sure. So. We saw a lot of early traction from the Apple savings account. It pays a 4.15, APY, uh, which is, is pretty good. Yeah. Um, in the first four days of its debut, which happened in April, the which was right after the the big banking panic. So it's you know take that for what you will. Uh, it attracted about a billion dollars worth of deposits in four days. Um, so. That had people thinking: Is this going to like destroy the banking system as we know it? Doesn't every other person in the world use Apple? <laughs> um, I mean, between me and you and the two uh, people behind the glass, I'm sure at least two of us have an iPhone. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it's it's not in, it's understandable why people would think that that could be a big disruptor. But there's a few things to to keep in mind. Number one, that APY makes them competitive with other. Online-based banks, not dominant. Um, I'm I'm a SoFi customer, for example, and mine pays 4.3% right now, so better than the Apple Savings account. So it's not the highest rate you're going to get out there. The rollout has not been without its speed bumps. If you um, if you Google Apple Savings account, all the news stories that come up are how people can't get their money in a timely manner. I was going to bring that up. You know, that's <laughs> the one thing that stood out. I've not used this this product, and I'm not going to use it. It's not something I'm interested in. But I I've already read enough of those stories where people couldn't get their money. I mean, that to me would be the most frustrating thing of all. You can't get your money. I mean, 
I'm out. <laughs> I don't expect it to necessarily be overnight. If I if I withdraw from my online savings account at 4 p.m. today, I don't necessarily expect it to be there tomorrow. But maybe the next day it should be there. Yeah. Not two weeks later. I'm still wondering where my money is and going back and forth with customer support. So there there have been some hiccups, and hiccups like that will kill a bank. Yeah. Um, can you imagine if 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 some of these regional banks came out in the weeks following the crisis? And people couldn't get their money. No, oh, I mean that's your that's the reason for being right there. I mean, right. they're supposed to do one thing and do it really well. <laughs> they had were in the depths of a crisis, and people could easily get their money with all these re- these regional banks. And I mean, the third reason that I'm not too worried about Apple is other fintechs have a lot more to offer in fin- in the financial context. Right. Apple's a big ecosystem, but the savings is like an adjacent product. It makes sense because that's where people's Apple Card reward points are being deposited into. That's where the cashback goes. But as far as a pri- like the primary place somebody puts their savings, people don't want to deal with two or three or four banks. They want everything in one place. Yeah. Um, I mentioned SoFi. The reason I use SoFi, it's not just because they have a good int- APY. I can get that in other places. It's because I can also have my investment account in that same place. I can also get a mortgage from them if I want to. I can also finance my car. I can also do a student loan refinance. I can also have a credit card through them. I can have a big banking relationship with a lot of these other fintechs that you can't with Apple. So yes, it's a, a niche product. It serves a purpose well. The Apple credit card, you know, it's a nice user base. It's desirable, but I don't think it's going to be a serious bank disruptor. There's something like $14 trillion of deposit volume last month in the U.S. banking system. So that $1 billion might sound like a big amount of money, but in the scheme of things, it's really not that big in banking. So I don't worry about Apple as really being a big competitor to the rest of the banking system. Yeah. Yeah, well, in regard to the regional banks, then it does sound like, I mean, at least Apple isn't necessarily the threat that maybe some thought it could have been. But, you know, when you're putting those regional banks up against the big banks and sort of looking at the evolution of this industry, right? I mean, it seems like we're seeing more consolidation and that likely will continue. Do you view regional bank stocks as a good investment today? Yeah, I would say if you're going to invest in regional banks, I mean, we've talked on podcasts a lot about doing a basket approach. Yeah, um, I would say even an ETF approach with regional banks makes a lot of sense right now, especially with some being really volatile, some being really stable. The regional bank uh, SPDR ETF, the ticker symbol is KRE, is still down about thirty percent for the year. It was down forty three percent at in early May at the lows, so it's come back a little bit. But that's a great way if you want regional banking exposure, but don't want, if you kind of believe in the system itself, but don't want to you know bet on any individual regional banks. That's a really good way to go. And then I also like I kind of like the regional banks that specialize in certain things. Like uh, as an example, Ally Financials in my portfolio. Um, they're an auto lender. They're really good at auto lending. They used to be part of GM before they spun off, um, and they have a great business model, great leadership, and. Most of their deposit clients are under that $250,000 FDIC limit, so they don't really have to worry about uninsured deposits. Um, it's really just a straight savings and loan play, um, not a lot of business banking there. So I, I like those if, if you're going to play an individual name, but my biggest bank stocks are still the big banks. Um, Bank of America and Wells Fargo are still my my two largest bank investments. Very interesting indeed. Well, we will leave it there. Matt, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope to do more of these with you. 
As always, people on the program may own stocks mentioned, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. I'm Ricky Mulvey. Thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.